Welcome, everybody, to Ohio Conference Cast here on Friday at Mennonite Church Convention in Orlando, Florida. I am here with my co-host, Jeff Hostetler, who doesn't have a microphone, so we'll hear from him later. Uh, we are doing a joint podcast today with uh, Peace Lab, uh, Hannah Heinzecker and Jason Boone, who also isn't here, and so we won't hear from him at all. Hannah, how are you? Uh, I'm good. It's getting to that tired point of convention, though, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to be coherent here. Good. Uh, yeah, we're going to go right from here to coffee and a nap, except we can't because there are other sessions. So sorry. There are two other people at the table, uh, Allison and Ted. Uh, Allison, uh, tell us who you are really and a little bit about yourself. Who I am really is Allison Brookins, and I come from Madison, Wisconsin. I just graduated from AMBS with an MDiv, and I'm about to become the pastor of Chicago Community Mennonite Church. But what you really probably care about is that I'm a playwright, and I wrote a play with Ted Swartz, who's right here. Ted Swartz. We've heard that guy's name before. Yeah. Somewhere. Ted, hi. Welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, and all the people who aren't here. <laughs> and Kevin Himes still is not doing an interpretive <laughs> dance in the background. He's still not doing it. He's still not doing it. That was just the first day. Yeah. Uh, so, Jeff, do you have anything to say? No, you don't, because you don't have a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh! So here's what you need That's to know. That's a metaphor. I think there's something <laughs> I don't know what yet. So is but. Jeff really here? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so Ted, what you need to know is I came into the Mennonite Church in 2004. And our very first convention, you and Lee were on stage interpreting scripture, mm. and I saw how you two interpreted scripture, and I felt at home in the Mennonite Church. Ah. And you are responsible for that, you and Lee wow. both. Well, that's good. So thank you for, for that, and it's an honor to sit with you here. Uh, I won't ask for your autograph because you're just a dude just <laughs> yeah, like me. Exactly. So. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks really for that. Thanks yeah, for no that. problem. <laughs> I will cry, and I won't ever shave again or something. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so uh, on uh, Wednesday night? Tuesday night. Tuesday night, there was a play held here at the Convention Center in Orlando, and the play was about the doctrine of discovery. Hannah, what's the doctrine of discovery? The doctrine of discovery. I've talked to Allison and Ted several times, so I should be able to say this. It's a framework like that started with the Pope way back when that justifies the theft of land from indigenous peoples and that still kind of has its roots expressing itself today but what does that have to do with us here now over to you allison and ted there you go wait give me my mic back <laughs> so that was jeff hostetler he stole my mic well he didn't really steal it i shoved it in his face uh norm you can probably take some of that stuff out uh, i'll leave that up to you <laughs> leave it all, all in. leave it all in yeah, well, that's probably fine yeah i i think it, one of the things that that i was told a couple of years ago uh around this is that if you really want to get to the root of the injustices racism uh patriarchy sexism you really need to look at this particular issue because it it it's it's where all of those injustices and institutions are built upon um it's as as Allison has, has said in introducing this. It's the explorers came and said we have this justification from the church and our state in Europe that gives us this land and your place in it. And I think that's one rings in my head a lot. Is they're telling the indigenous people this is your place in the world, and we will do everything that we can to keep you in that place in the world. And so it sets up the hierarchy of culture. It sets up the hierarchy of, of patriarchy. It sets up the hierarchy of, of um, who owns the land. And, and, and to come into a, a nation such as this, who the native 
people that were here didn't have a concept of ownership in the way that the European explorers came with. So it was this a brand new idea, and and, and um, so that it undergirds the things that um, are going on today. Theft of land is still happening. It's regarding around often minimal minimal mineral rights and extraction of again wealth in the same way so that we think it's happened a long time ago and yes it did happen a long time ago but it's it's tentacles are still with us today and there are a number of people in kentucky who would uh and west virginia who would talk in a similar way uh folks who lived in the hills and uh yeah who don't have control over what what they do anymore so there's a kind of blindness involved in the doctrine of discovery in the idea of terra nullius this empty land the idea that uh, somebody can land on a shore and look out and see no one there when there are people there. And they see no people there because they are not living in ways that were expected. They are not working the land in the same way. They don't have political structures in the same way. Family structures are different, and they're not Christian. They are uncivilized. And so it's this idea that people who are not Christian, people who are not civilized, are not people. They do not exist. And so that's this idea that there is there is just land and no one's using it. And I, I saw this just a few years ago when a, a legislator came into a class I was in and talked about how nobody lived in northern Wisconsin. There was just nobody there. They weren't using the land. And so really, we need to build this dam. And that's it is a it is a blindness. That word civilized or civilization is sort of a code word too, right? There's all sorts of things. It's not civilized, but mm-hmm. it's not a certain type of civilization. Yeah. So I did I just hear you equate Christianity and civilization? Why yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't really intend to do that, do you? <laughs> that is what has been done for centuries. Uh, the assumption that civilization equals Christianity. And in a lot of the early documents, part of the justification is for for invasion and taking of land is, well, in return, they got Christianity and civilization, and that is good enough. And not just Christianity and civilization, but white Western Christianity and right, civilization. Right, exactly, right. yes. Right. Yeah. Which is true Christianity. I'm quote, I'm making air right. quotes. Oh, air quotes. Air, air, quotes, air, quotes. air quotes. Air quotes come across really well in podcasts. They do, <laughs> as well as interpretive dance. <laughs> Which is stunning, by the way. Yes. <laughs> no, no, he's not here. <laughs> well, maybe he was. <laughs> okay. Um, what is the name of your play? The play is called Discovery, A Comic Lament. And where can we see it? Oh, that is a very good question. That's why I'm asking. If you go to the website, there's a prominently placed book this show button. Yes. Website. Website tedandcompany.com. Ted and A-N-D? A-N-D. So T-E-D-A-N-D-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y.com. Dot com. I'm good. Very good. Yes. So tedandcompany.com, there's a place to book the show. We are booking for this fall. Uh, 2017 yet mostly November is open and then January through uh, July is wide open for for bookings for the show so I can't go to YouTube or Vimeo or see it anywhere there no No, you'll have to actually you actually have to like buy it book and I realize that I realize this is a a different concept for a whole generation (laughs) of people used to getting their videos and music free but you'll have to book the show Okay. Well, I guess that's okay. <laughs> well, I'm used to that. My children, however, will struggle yes. there. Yes. Which brings up another point. Um, 
I heard you say on stage the other night that it was young adults or it is young adults who are asking for this message to come out. Why? I'm told that we're a generation that really values integrity, that we really want authenticity and we want things to be consistent and true and real. Someone is trying to break their way into our interview room <laughs> yeah. right now. So forgive my pause. I, I think it's okay. It's it's fine. It's if the they come <laughs> in, they'll be on the podcast. Yeah, they're the dancers. Okay. They're the dancers. <laughs> that's, that's it. They're so, the dancers. Yeah. <laughs> it, what's fascinating is I think other other generations would, would say, hey, we claim the same thing. But I, I, I see this generation um, casting aside a bit of the, uh, of the trappings of things that we fought through in previous generations of, okay, we're going to be authentic, but I sure do love the muscle car I have. I, I still do love this. And, and things of clothing and car, and it feels like it's, it's, it's peeling away. So it feels like in and, and every generation has their people that are always going to be authentic, and that's why we continue to thrive um, if we are thriving as a, a culture and a denomination, that each generation has to find the realness in terms of how they interpret their values. Um, but I don't think we're the only generation with integrity, just to be clear. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's the only present millennial generation who's dealing with integrity. So the, you're you're the only ones that are of that 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 age group. Yeah, you know, okay, I'm I'm wandering around a bit, but uh, yeah. this is yeah. <laughs> speak to us, <laughs> please. Jeff yeah, here. Great. This is not just something that um, is a is a play on its own too. Like there are other church agencies that are uh, and and other Mennonite groups that are uh, addressing this. Yes. In other ways too. I I think uh, you had mentioned that as well. But like this, so this is this is happening kind of in concert with. A wide variety of agencies. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, Allison? You you wrote the play. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about um, how it came about? Just mm -hmm. some of the origins of that, and um, was this something you wanted to do for um, on your own, and then you you found out other groups were doing. Uh, like I think about Mennonite Central Committee and specifically working to address the doctrine of discovery. Um, and, and especially speaking out in churches and other 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 ways too. Mm -hmm. But if you could speak, yeah. Uh, so the play got started because I had a good friendship with somebody who was on the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition, which is our partner organization for this show, and that's a group of Indigenous and white settler Anabaptist folks who are working on um, pushing through on some education some reparations work, um, some other structural work around undoing the doctrine of discovery. So I had this friend who was part of this and oh, knowing her for years, she had been solely educating me. And then when I was going to do my internship with Ted, I was looking for something to do to focus my work on, focus my writing on, and she suggested the doctrine of discovery. And a couple ideas popped into my head and I thought, I think I could do that. Um, and so then I entered into relationship with the coalition and my writing process was really uh, going back and forth between the coalition, people c talking on the phone, and my writing group in Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I was living for the summer working with Ted. And so I would go to my writing group with something I'd written and they'd say, you're very passionate, but that's not very funny or very good. And so then I would take it back and I would rewrite. Ted is nodding. 
<laughs> I mean, it happened. So yes, I think you're exactly right. Uh, and then I would, would work on it some more and take it to the coalition and they'd say, well, you know, that's kind of funny, but you're missing the point. And so then I would bring it back. So I was going back and forth between these two groups and, and really needing both voices to keeping me honest, to keep me keep me accountable to artistic values and keeping me honest to activist values and helping me to educate myself. And then Ted and I went to a gathering of the coalition and did a staged reading and from there entered into full partnership with the Dismantling Coalition. Yeah, I, I add a couple of things. So what, what Allison misses in that going back and forth and having a response at one and a response to the other is in the middle is that art is happening. So that she's she's creating the sketch that makes the play that runs the through line that creates the magic that good theater really is. So, yeah, she doesn't put that part in, which is she's a well, good not. she's a good writer and then you you can what I found that was remarkable about uh, about Allison was that you can make a suggestion on Monday and, and, and by Wednesday it's a whole different sketch. And that's pretty rare. Yeah. So, um just to reiterate too of of working with people that are already there. Um I'm involved in this because Allison came to me with an idea and I'm um I, I call myself a missionary for the for theater. And I'm interested in using that avenue to explore ideas I think are important. Or conversations that we have to have, be it the Bible or be it social justice or uh, a conversation around sexuality and this. So there are many, many, many people who've been pushing this wagon up the hill a long time. And, and I'm coming to it late, maybe we're coming to it late, and we're just putting our hands to the back of the wagon and trying to help people push the wagon. Um, and there, there are so many people in the coalition that are, are um, have given their lives to this conversation. So we're coming in really late in some ways, but in other ways, uh, it may be the right time for some people to hear it in a different way that captures their interest and gets them involved. So the education that they're learning hopefully seeps into their bones and uh, after, as Allison has said, a period of lament about that, then you can find out, okay, what am I going to do about this? What are the ways that I can participate in perhaps in reparations? And we're, we're in conversations about that can be a scary word for people, reparations, because some people say, well, um, I'm, I'm not ready to give up my house. And Sarah Augustine has a great response to that. He says, we're only 1% of the population. We don't want your house. <laughs> so re- reparations has the, as its root the word repair. Yeah. And it's not about one thing. It's about many things that are going to repair this, this social illness that we have as a nation because our origins are built on injustice. And then you add slavery a couple hundred years later, and those two streams of injustice have made our society sick. But have also built our systems that we use. Yes, yes, yes. They, so we, our systems are built on something that is. Um, it, it creates it, there, it. It does create a cancer, a trauma that 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 runs through us. And until we come to that point of understanding that and maybe doing something about it, then it will always be there. I believe in. I believe in trauma that gets passed down from generation to generation and generation, systemic right. trauma. And we have no idea what it's done to us. 
You know, we're here at convention, and one of the other things happening is this future church summit, which I know many of us are participating in. And last night was looking at our history, the history of kind of Mennonite Church USA and Anabaptism. And one of the speakers who was helping us interpret that history was Erica Littlewolf, who was pointing out some of these events that I think some of us who are white settlers often miss in the Mennonite history and the explicit ways we've kind of participated in this with boarding schools um, or, or planting churches on reservations and not necessarily allowing those indigenous people access to our institutions, even as we're doing this missionary work. Um, I think the line Erica said last night was, you know, on her reservation, there was a church and they were going to the church, but they had no idea that there were Mennonite colleges. Right. That that was the institution of the church was brought, but the institution of the school was not. So this idea Mm -hmm. of remembering the broader history and also our particular histories, how are you hearing people kind of responding to this play as you're traveling through Mennonite communities? So a through line of the play is um, a story of a family in Kansas who have a story of Russian Mennonite heritage from Russia, Germany, Manitoba, down to Kansas, and have uh, experienced persecution, trauma, forced migration, and have a lot of pain and trauma around that. And it doesn't try to take that story away. The play doesn't try to take that story away. But through the play, this family slowly becomes aware of another story, in this case of the Potawatomi people who came from northern Indiana and in um, 1930, sorry, 1838. 1838. It's Ted's line, so yeah. I, it's my line. I wrote it, but yeah, whatever. She, yeah, I'm, It's my job to remember the line. She doesn't have to. 1838. 1838. Uh, the Potawatomi people were removed from northern Indiana to Kansas, to the same area. Uh, and so the play is trying to bring these two stories into relationship with each other. Um, not trying to replace one with the other, not trying to delegitimize one in favor of the other. Um, because once you are together and there's a shared acknowledgement of stories, there's new energy and there's new relationships, new things that can happen between you. It is not a trying to displace people, other people. Displace people are not trying to redisplace other people. Yeah. We're not trying to take your houses, like Ted said but trying to see what new things can come out of these relationships. So you and just want my car? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mind. I don't want to pay to park it, though. It is kind of a nice car. Uh, it is a nice car. <laughs> that's a line in the play. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so as a 52-year-old white guy, uh, it's very easy for me to retreat to protectionism, right? But Mm -hmm. these are my things and this is what I was raised to understand and this is and this is and this is and this is. But one of the things your play has helped me to put back in my mind was a story that I heard about my background uh, a number of years ago uh, that four or five generations ago, a a man and a woman, father and mother, husband and wife, made a choice to raise their children, their native children as white children so that they would avoid racism and ridicule and all of those things. And those are my ancestors. Mm. That was the story that I heard. And so in the back, but it has no bearing on me really because I was, well, four generations later, I'm just a normal middle-aged white guy in America, right? Um, But then a year or two ago, I heard my sister and my father talking because they're the ones who look into all this stuff. I have no, I just, 
I just don't know what to do with any of it. Uh, and they said that there was a new thought that it's possible that that story was created in order to divert away that there might be not native blood, but African blood. And that might have been even more embarrassing for those people back then. And I don't know what to make of any of that. And so your play, thank you very much, messed with my head all <laughs> on its own, but then brought all of those things, and now I'm going to have to go back and look uh, and wonder what exactly happened and then ask the more difficult question, what does that mean for me and what does that mean for me tomorrow? Um, but what I hear overall is that uh, the purpose of bringing this to the forefront or putting your hand at the back of the wagon to maybe one more push up the hill and if more people could help push this up the hill maybe it could actually be on top so people could see it uh is that it am i right that you're saying or others and others are saying that this is the doctrine of discovery is a root cause of the sin of systemic racism in the united states maybe elsewhere but we're talking here yes about the united states yes yes okay. All right, and this is why it matters, because it's uh, something that we need not to repeat yes. and even to undo. And something that um, somebody said to me near the beginning of the process of writing the play was that she's been working on the Doctrine of Discovery for years, has been working in activism for years, and she said that she does not see people burning out on working on the Doctrine of Discovery in quite the same way as they do in other areas of activism, because it feels like less of a Band-Aid and more like, this is really it. Like, this is really, mm. there's something really deep here. And it's hard. I'm not saying that it is in any way easier than other types, but it, that it, than other types of oppression and act, working against that. But that it feels sustainable mm. uh, in, a, in a different way because it feels so core and important. Yeah, I, I, that's, I'm glad you said that. that. I mean, that really hit strongly with me. Um, connecting to the rootedness of it. So it may be harder work. It may be more distanced work for some people. What's interesting in terms of you asked about how it's been responded to in different parts of Mennonite communities. We have only been in Virginia, Indiana, Winnipeg, Minnesota, and then here. Um, and then here there's people from all, all, all across the country. So the, it, it felt very different in Virginia than it did in those other Midwest and Western states because there there's much more of an immediacy to the conversation. There may be Native Americans living there or indigenous people in Canada. And there were people in the audience um, who responded to the play from that perspective, both in Winnipeg and Minnesota. And the, the Potawatomi story has been told well and, and more often in Indiana. What will be interesting from my perspective is go to Eastern Pennsylvania, where I'm from initially, and see how it hits or whether or not it's even invited because it feels so long ago and our ethos as Mennonites is that our love of the land has defined us and that this God-given you know William Penn God bless his soul he's almost a Mennonite okay he was a Quaker that's good okay almost a Mennonite gave us access to this land for these embattered people who had been martyred you know several couple hundred years before and were displaced in Germany for the Hundred Years' War and all of that kind of stuff. And here's this land, and all of a sudden, they're not persecuted and successful and wealthy, and God certainly did bless them. So that's the narrative that's in eastern Pennsylvania. 
and there's this bit of knowledge that, oh, yeah, I guess the Delaware tribe was here. Um, but they, of course, were following God's directive as well and, and giving us the land and sort of fading away. Like, where did they go? Um, there isn't a, that I'm aware of, and I could someone will probably tell me if I'm wrong, which I often am, is that the Trail of Tears, the Trail of Death, those kinds of more well-known journeys that didn't feel like in Pennsylvania that there was that defined moment that I think it was a process mm. and it, well, I don't the, know what's going to happen Indian there. Removal Act wasn't for another couple hundred years so that it was really after that that a lot of these more sustained exoduses okay. happened but right. do any of you remember the book Coals of Fire was that a book that was read in your Sunday school this is no. this is like this Mennonite book that I can't even remember who wrote it but it was very much um, something that my grandparents referenced, and it includes the story of Jacob Hostetler and the Delaware Indians in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Um, and it's a story of, it's stories of Mennonite non-resistance, and mm-hmm. some of them are relationships with indigenous people very much framed around, um, you should check this out, because it's very much these stories of white settlers acting in non-resistant ways yes. with these violent indigenous peoples. Yes. Um, and another a story that's that's told about William Penn is what you know he gave a fair price for land like he dealt fairly um, and I've read some of those early documents between um, William Penn and the indigenous people who were there and this is the dancers sorry yeah. <laughs> do carry on it's most interesting <laughs> um, I've read some of those documents between Penn and the indigenous people and he is basically yes he's he's dealing fairly by european standards by these this particular set of rules he's like i'm going to treat you well we're still going to buy your land like that part's not really negotiable what is negotiable is the price and that we're going to do it we're going to do it well so it is it is a uh it's really hard to see until you take a few steps back all of the frameworks by which we look at the world, the way that we value land, that we understand land. Um, there's a piece in the play wh- that talks about alienable and inalienable property and rights. And the, the way that you know that you own something, like a car, is if you can sell it. It is called the right to alienability. And you only own something if you have the deed, title, whatever it is. I've never sold a car. And uh, if, you can, if you can sell it, if you have the right to sell it, then it is really yours. That is just the way that we deal with property. That is not like an inherent way that property has to be dealt with. But it's so key for us that we, we have trouble seeing outside of it. So I think one reason this play is so is big or not to play, the topic is big, that the Doctrine of Discovery is important, is that it is really asking us to not put Band-Aids on things, but to actually look at how are we asking things to be turned around? How are we asking things to be looked at differently and treated differently so that we can have sustained justice and sustained change? Well said. Mm. So thank you, Allison. Bam? Bam. Bam, yeah. Drop the mic. Uh, So thank you. No, don't, no, no. That was $100. Is that that the only value it has for you? Uh, No. Yes. If even that, yeah. Uh, It's just a microphone. Um, Thank you, Ted and Allison. Uh, Allison, I'm wondering uh, if, as you assume a pastoral role in a congregation, if we're going to lose the playwright because this play is incredibly well written. Uh, Can you swear? Oh, no, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, so Allison says no, she will continue to write plays, which is very good uh, because this play is very well crafted, uh, performed very well also, but you have to have material to work mm-hmm. with. Yeah, and So people it. should book it, right? So people should book it, and so that's tedandcompanyspelledout.com yes. and click on the book it now button yeah. or something. There's book an, this th- show. Yeah, there's another. It's blue. Blue, the blue book the show button. There you go. Yeah, I can't remember if it's that takes you to which show or do you have to click on that show and then book it? I think they'll figure it out. Yeah, okay. We're smart people. There's other options. The play is Uh, called Discovery, A Comic Lament. All right, great. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jeff, for not talking. Thank you, (laughs) Hannah, uh, and the Peace Lab podcast for joining us. And uh, have a good night, everybody. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. (laughs) 